Broadcasting from Fairfax, Virginia, you are now listening to The Highlight Cast. Hello, and welcome back to Highlight Cast. I'm Ashley Nichols, Highlight VP for Corporate Strategy and Development, and I'm happy to be back hosting as we discuss the future of software development. We had the pleasure of attending and sponsoring RiseAge Prodacity event uh, earlier this month, uh, and there were some amazing insights and conversations around development and procurement, um, how to push the envelope in development in the federal sector, and it inspired today's conversation around current trends in development, software factories, and, and innovation. So welcome, and I am pleased to be joined by Highlight the VP of National Security Solutions, Kevin Long. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Ashley. It's good to be here. I won't beat around the bush. We'll we'll get right to yeah, it. Yeah, let's do it. What are some of the major takeaways from Prodacity uh, that you're most excited to apply to our work here at Highlight? I was actually really surprised with uh, Prodacity with the way they uh, put it together this year in the best possible way, um, where they had it in all, all around geeky stuff, but they had... Uh, culture, technology, procurement, sort of different tracks around around that. And I went to some of each. Um, but what I took away most of it was uh, two things, data and culture and how they interact. And then also, I mean, ubiquitous AI everywhere, right? They talk about all that. But, you know, culture in terms of how you implement AI and what you want to do with it and how you can do it, uh, do it intelligently. The data that drives good AI and things like that. But really, uh, a lot of... It was, you know, how, how you know you have the right, the right data and the right information and how you have the right culture to encourage innovation and change uh, where it's necessary. And so those were the big things that I took away. Yeah, I was, uh, I was busy at the booth for a lot of it. So I missed some of the keynotes that were, I felt like a lot around leadership and culture. Yeah. Um, in the environment, I really enjoyed the heavy participation of government personnel. Uh, and really getting their insights. I think a lot of these conferences, you don't, you don't always get that, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of times I it's echo those, chamber from contractors, for sure. It is, right? So, so really hear some of their needs and challenges um, and, and what they're trying to do. And I think what I found was a lot of it's fairly universal, right? People are coming up against the same challenges and roadblocks. And and looking for similar solutions across those sets, which you know, for someone like us, is super valuable, right? Mm-hmm. But I also really enjoyed that they had a whole procurement track this time, right? Uh, that was really, so good. Uh, yeah, and so I spent a lot of my session time there. So yeah, 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 it was really well put on. It really was, yeah. So with that, what were some of the top challenges that? that you heard the federal government were facing with regard to software development? I think about uh, some of the top challenges that they're facing uh, around a lot of what people chose to highlight as their successes, right? Because if it's easy stuff, no one wants to talk about it and hear about it, right? Because it's Hmm. always been done uh, and you don't have the wow factor. Um, And so the, the things that really stuck with me were the data sharing uh, stuff that VA was able to do that allowed them to have APIs being shared out to uh, remove a whole bunch of siloed information. And they were able to implement that through, because it's a Rise 8 
uh, thing, continuous authority to operate, right? With CATO, they were the first uh, FedCiv agency that that got their their CATO to be able to do that. And so uh, really, you know, keeping your data secure, making it a, making it visible where it needs to be, but only to where it needs to be, uh, and being able to see all of the data and information that agencies have because they're just they're collecting it at a phenomenal rate. But they're but if it's not shared, if it's not secured, and if it's not accessible, then what does it matter? And so that's really the the, the challenge that I think that they were really focusing on there. I think that matches up with a lot of the procurements that we're seeing coming up to, right? A lot of the DevSecOps, which you think about as more systems, case management, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. A lot of the DevSecOps procurements that are out there now are around data, around AI, right? And governance. I think which really governance, right? And governance of the things and really focuses on um it really tells you where we're at, yeah. right? Uh, with with the with the up those upcoming needs within the federal government. This was largely um, DoD. I would say there was a lot more DoD folks here than oh, yeah. some other folks. Yeah. Uh, so it was a bit more software factory focused so, than say. So DoD and law yeah. enforcement. It's like if if people that you serve probably need to carry a gun at some point. They were there, so we saw some law enforcement <laughs> too. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the criticality of information right? in the field. Really, is that, is that really all comes down to? And that speaks to the data uh, and the AI um, and the mission criticality uh, of the systems that we're talking about. Um, some of the trends that I think that we saw focused on uh, in the discussion were: I'll start with procurement flexibility, and this is. You know, where I really kind of dug in, it was a big learning experience for me, you know, familiar with things like OTAs, right, other transactional authorities, um, and SIBRs, you know, uh, innovation and R&D requests. But they talked about uh, broad, broad agency announcements as well as CSOs in terms of these the different ways that they're procuring what they need. And a lot of times it's not even on a large scale. You know, it's the desire to prototype innovative solutions into their spaces before they go sort of whole hog in a direction, which I think is really critical to the speed of fielding these systems. I think I actually saw, I can't remember where it was, but it was, uh, you know, someone I think high up in Air Force that was talking about when you're preparing for the next challenges that we have from the military standpoint. And he was referring specifically to China, you know, he said that we will be ready by 2036 when really we need to be ready in the next three to four years, right? For yeah. the kind of cyber challenges, right, that that that, that uh, relationship brings up. Um, and so I think that these alternate procurement strategies are really focused on being able to speed up that timeline because we all know that the classic procurement process right now is it's always been slow with the idea of getting the best value for the government, which is an excellent aim. Um, but in a, in a, in a time of protest, it is just Super really cumbersome. kind of ground to a halt in terms of being able to, you know, get technology to the warfighter, um, which is the real focus. Yeah. Getting the right tools to the government in a timely fashion uh, 
yeah, it was um, uh, the CTO at a at the Bestman Software Factory, who was a procurement officer at Kessel Run, did a really great presentation on avoiding uh, competition theater, also um, around procurement and uh, the number of uh, contracting officers that were in that room listening to to ways to make sure that they're asking the right questions, that they have the right uh, the, the right requirements down, that they're they're procuring it in the most effective way. I mean, because like contracting officers, I mean, they hear code challenges or they hear orals, they hear, I mean, you know, they know the FAR and the DFAR, right? And so uh, they're listening to other folks to try to put it in the right place. And his, his talk around uh, around that, I, I thought was really informative from a, uh, uh, hearing it from uh, a former Fed contractor point, or Fed contracting officer. Point. There were a number of former federal acquisition officials that were there that are now uh, focused in the private sector, but very specifically on focusing their former, you know, on helping their former colleagues get what they want right. in terms of procurement, right? Um, a lot That's of, so you know, consulting facilitation for both the government and industry too, because what was also interesting about Pernacity was that a lot of the industry participants were small businesses. I did not see many of my normal large large business cohort of folks I usually see. Um, we're large business, but uh, we're definitely on the emerging side of that. Uh, so it was it was an interesting spot to be in. Talk to talk to a lot of uh, folks who are scaled similarly to us and in sort of the same boat as we are, and talk about how they are trying to service their customers, the agility they're trying to achieve. Um, and I think that speaks a little bit to uh, where the, the target, not the target audience, but where a lot of the people providing these agile solutions, these truly agile solutions are on the smaller side because they do offer that kind of procurement. It doesn't take away maybe from the scale that you need from some, you know, a lot of large system support, especially right. established system support, but when it comes to... Um, but solving the it, new it, problems, you can't, yeah. you can't put it into a, you know, 75,000 person machine and expect it to move quickly, right? Yeah. And and in some of those uh, alternate procurement vehicles are open only to small, to smalls. you know, right? Um, yeah. You know, trying to, you know, get a twofer. I also read that the small business engagement across DOD has declined considerably over the last 10 years. Really? Um yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. This is a problem across federal government that they've been been trying to reach. But I think that uh, leaning into innovation is is a way specifically that the development community uh, is really trying to bring some of those those skills back in um, to the collective government workforce. Um, and interestingly, I think plug plug. We have a software <laughs> license management a yes, we do. solution called Atlas that we that we, you know, had there with us that got a lot of interest. Yeah. But I will say that is because, you know, while we developed it for one customer specifically, um, it's software license management, software asset management is continuing challenge throughout the development, the whole IT space for the federal government, right? Uh, I think that there are millions of dollars of assets and, and licenses that uh, different agencies can't account yeah. for underused um, or paying overages because they can't predict what, what what's gonna uh, what's gonna happen 
don't have the ability to predictively model uh, what if scenarios around uh, if things scale up or scale down, aren't able to negotiate better rates because they don't know how many they're going to buy of any particular license at, at a time. Yeah, it's it is a it's sort of like a meta problem for like software factories and large software software groups. It's uh, when I talk about, I mean, I have a talk on on the foundations on building software factories about the foundation of it. It's having a tool like Atlas that that again, <laughs> it's about the data, right? Uh, so people yeah. so people know what they have, who's using it, when it was last used. Do they need to ha- have more? When do the terms and all of these, all, all of this information so that, I mean, a software factory or, or a branch in, in the military or, or, or any other federal government is like a business. They have a budget, they have to run it. And if they don't know what they're spending and nobody wants to pay attention to Gmail licenses, JIRA licenses, right? That's Yeah, it is not the sexy no, part of this work, right? But, but it is a critical- It, it is the foundation upon saving. which all the other yeah. IT happens. You can't deliver the software if you don't have the tools. And having sort of just top-notch, easy-to-use, data-forward visibility into the the tools and the assets that you have at your at your disposal is is critical. And it is uh, it's yeah, we saw a lot of great interest in hearing about it because while it's not the hey we're re reprogramming how to refuel uh, 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 bombers. It is. Those guys can't program how to refuel bombers without the tool right. that we have provide. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. So I'll claim credit for uh, that. Also, as we see some consolidation in software factories, as well as software factories are established as a concept throughout the DOD. Yep. Right. And uh, depending on who you talk to, varying degrees of success depending on um, a lot of things. So some encouragement is like, do we have too many? Mm-hmm. Do we need to pull some back in? And as you start to consolidate these things too, you have sort of a multi-tenancy situation, right? Or multiple customer situation. 100%. Which, you just got which, to where I was about to go. I love it. it yeah, <laughs> which is where you really also, the visibility into those things um from a financial, from a FinOps standpoint, yeah. uh, you know, becomes critical and the capability to do that. So that is, uh, you know, certainly a need. The, uh, the FinOps, the software license management is inextricably linked to the FinOps of these organizations, right? So um, yep. we're seeing that need pop up. And again, you see procurements around that or they're embedded in a lot of uh, those needs are embedded in a lot of the procurements like oh, yeah. Air Force's Cloud One and the different CSP. Um, yeah, well, I mean, CSP any any team, any organization that has multiple teams with different missions, or is uh, like you said, like literally multi tenancy, where it's fee for service or things like that, right? Or any yeah. any horizontal uh, that, that's doing that that has to support multiple different missions. There's the Venn diagrams of of IT overlap are get really complicated in terms of who can use what for for what tool and you know what tools do we already have good licensing deals with that do the same thing as this other thing that people are looking for and so knowing what 
what you have in in your quiver and and can roll out and do it affordably and and manage it all together is <clears throat> it is I, I don't want to say this is it's like a lot of these groups become like innovation silos because they sort of had to cordon themselves off a little bit to be able to operate on a, on, on, yeah, on a finite set of this is what we're going to work on and then we're going to get it out. Um, and so with that, the more you do that, then, you know, you have a hundred different things all doing that, but then you're siloed again. And, you know, so as you were saying is, you know, there's some consolidation or even, you know, up a level at like a CIO that, that can then provide down to all of that across all of the multi-tenants is absolutely the next step both in cost savings understanding and uh, the ability to provide the right tools for, for the software developers. Yeah, that's a good point. It certainly applies to any CIO organization who's responsible for supporting the multiple tenants of their agency, right? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, all CIO organizations are not necessarily created equal. Some are more guidance and some are more, we actually control the tech, uh, but for those folks for each office, yep. you know, they, they constitute a different tenant with a different budget. Um, uh, and they need the same accessibility, uh, consistency of stack, and visibility for finances. Absolutely. Um, one other interesting thing is, and I won't go into it here because I'm no, I don't think anybody's really solved it yet, was a lot of it cross-agency interest in being able to procure from other services. Yep. Meaning, can Coast Guard buy from Army right. Cloud? Can Air Force buy from Army? you know, uh, in different areas. And, and I heard tell of somebody who made one of those things happen, but that is, that is a real challenge that takes, I think the political will mm -hmm. of both leaders in those two services to be able to come together and make that yeah. happen. But, uh, that kind of, uh, certainly collapses this whole notion that every service needs their own. Right. Yeah. Dang. Right. And then, and then there's just a, in the middle of all of that too. Right. So yeah, I mean, outside of <laughs> Intel where, there's like the monolith cloud for, for that. It's, it is incredibly difficult um, to do that. And it really does take a bunch of political will and the, the willingness to, I'm sure it feels like tilting at windmills sometimes to, to get it done. But yeah, there's, there's so much, while it's not a hundred percent overlap, there's so much commonality around, around some of that, that there really truly is uh, efficiencies of scale that have yet to be recognized around. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the concept of, of full stack development, right? And this has been for the last several years, you know, full stack, full stack, full stack. <laughs> Is that still the trend? Is there, uh, are you seeing a, a bit of movement away from that back towards specialization? You know, what I read is a little bit of both. And I think it depends on the maturity of your organization, right? If you've been yeah. in the full stack model for a while, uh, in terms of developers, <clears throat> I think they're noticing now that they have, there's a need again for some specialization, but you want to talk a little bit to that? Sure. So I smirk every time people say full stack because <laughs> a full stack developer is not eye shaped, right? It is not, they are not equally deep across the full breadth of their experience. They're going to be T shaped, right? They can do a lot of stuff. They're very good at a couple. Um, uh, and so I think that the the stated uh, full stack, 
I think successful organizations that even while they're looking for full stack are uh, hiring people that know how to do a lot of different things, but that they are have always been paying attention to the specializations within each full stack developer. Um, the really successful ones do make a distinction between like full stack developers and like product owners and like UI UX and things like that, uh-huh. uh, where they are truly different things. But the, the goal of Agile is anybody can pick up any ticket and, and, and execute it. And so you need to have familiarity across the board of it. But um, I'm still seeing, I guess, to really answer your question, I'm still seeing people asking for full stack. Yeah. Um, but uh, the successful teams that are delivering full stack are paying attention to not uh, not just that they have experience with, you know, uh, infrastructure's code and automated testing and uh, insert your object-oriented program language of choice here and JavaScript and, and things like that. Um, it is that they look at what folks um, uh, are, are... You're still looking what for they, a balance of the skill sets across, across the stack, right? Across it. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like a lot of, I always think it's a lot of things, you know, the pendulum spins, swings one way for a long time and then it right. swings back the other way and um, yeah. everything mean, old I'm, is new again. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing more differentiation on the, not the full stack developer, but on the DevOps side where it's not, where it was just DevOps engineer, where it's everything yeah. to now you have Kubernetes specialists and things yeah. like that, where, where they're, uh, where they just took you know, full stack IT support infrastructures code, like people that worked in, in the server room back in the day, dating myself now, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> were lumped together, right? You know, say, so, hey, I know how to administer Unix and Windows, right? Um, but now it's, uh, I can do the infrastructures code, I can set up the pipelines, I can run that stuff, or uh, I'm good at, at day two ops, I'm good at, you know, the Kubernetes uh, virtualization control plane stuff and all that's, you know, so I'm seeing that actually get more granular than on the, on the straight development side these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we're going to host another discussion around AI more fully, but uh, what'd you hear about AI at production? Oh, it's that, that it's everywhere <laughs> that it needs to be done smart. I'm going to summarize. This is the the the, the Kevin summary of it. Uh, AI is only as good or as dangerous as the data and rules that are put around it, and so you have to be incredibly careful with it because it is it, its ability to operate at speed and scale is such that if it is not thought out carefully and appropriately in the beginning, you will get something that you truly do not want on the end. Uh, yeah. I think overall, I'm hearing far more excitement than oh, fear or wariness. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like you know, what is the governance? What is the governance of that um, right. look like? I you mean, know, I heard uh, at, at a at a different conference at, at ELC, I heard some folks talk about um, you know, some, some state folks, some state department folks, and some other mm-hmm. folks talk about uh, bots, right, and and yeah. how they're going to use those and uh, somebody, I will not name them, went immediately towards like ultimately like we want unattended bots, and then everybody else on the panel went like, Ugh, 
I don't know, right. unattended box. Like we're a long way from that, right? Um, but the yeah. idea is to um, take away a lot of the human-oriented tasks that are like tedious and rote and over and over mm-hmm. again. Human checking, sure. attended versus yep. just like letting it go. Yeah, um, it's it's a I, supercharger. I mean, it yeah. really is. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all we've all found that even in like the in, in the simplest ways, right? With being able to use things like ChatGPT and whatever to like short circuit, yeah, summarizing I mean, things that would normally take us, you know, a oh, lot yeah. longer. I mean, and yeah, I mean, I, I trusted but verified. I mean, it planned one of the best vacations I've ever had. <laughs> there you go. Helpful tip: yeah. use AI to plan your vacation. Absolutely. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we're shifting. Yeah, let me shift gears here as we come up towards the end a little bit. Um, what's the future look like for Software Factory? We talked a little bit about it before. Whether now they're, you know, we're a few years into Software Factory, and, um, sure. Some soul searching is going on around the model. Um, what's the future of Software Factory? Boy, I wish I knew that answer for sure, because then I could go go solve all their problems up front. Um, <laughs> So it, it's interesting. I, I, I think that they're still figuring out the way they want to do it. We're seeing the different services and different agencies approach software factories in a lot of different ways. You know, like Air Force uh, spins up a software factory around a unique problem set, and then they solve it. The Army stands up uh, like the one ring of software factories that pulls in problem sets from everywhere and operates like a horizontal um, you get folks at, at at DHS that are doing it by uh, by wide product line, right? And so um, I think that the future of software factories is going to be more and more around them figuring out the best way to organize themselves to solve the problems that they've been created to solve. The, the power of the software factories and the mentality and the ethos that drives things forward, really, uh-huh. right? Because otherwise, in my opinion, it's just it's just an agile software team, which is great. You get a lot of things done, but uh, it's the, the the scientific method in the questioning and the 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 that the, they uh, that software factories apply to their culture and change management that I think really make them the the super powerful. Uh, change agents for good that they that they have been. And I think that they're still looking around and trying to figure out what is the best way, not just necessarily writ large, but for within their agency, for within their problem set, for within that. And I think that we're going to see them reorganizing and trying to figure out the best way to do that as they as they continue to push forward while trying to, I mean, put the plane together while it's taking off, right? Because they're sure. still it's still very early on with that. And so um, yeah, that's that's what I think is going to be happening with, with them in the, in the in the future. And it's yeah, I think we're going to help them do it. I think we're going to see a lot more um, focus in the development of the soldier developer, right? Uh, we we've seen some of that, right? There's pressure coming from a lot of places, right? There's too many contractors in the space. You know, what are what is the future for uh, our service folks, right? In, in getting into new 
you know, areas of expertise, you know, on a lot of the, the services have the, um, the boot camps and the training to create soldier led software factories. Uh, there's been some criticism about uh, can you effectively spin all those people up from zero to be effective by themselves, right? And, and have them be inf- yeah. effective before they PCS to their next, to their next, uh, uh posting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think we're going to see, I, I think that there's a lot of love of that program, obviously, and for good reason. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more work on that going forward on how to make that the most effective, what is the best balance between the, the soldier developer and the, um, the contractor balance, right? Some of the more commercial based expertise to bring into the space. So I think we'll see, I think, some more emphasis on that. Uh, more effective training and support for those, you know, soldier developers um, to make the software factories, you know, as as optimize them as, as effective as they can be. Yep. Um, all right. Final question. Broad as it was. What are your hopes for federal software development in, in 2024? What are you What are you looking to see in 2024? Hoping to see. Uh, I'm hoping to see the. So I love the ethos of software factories. So around that, I would like to I would like to see uh, the ethos of software factories move more writ large. The way that it is, um, the culture of you know being able to to go anywhere that would have you know ideas over rank, right? Where you have if it if it doesn't work now, let's try it and see how it works and move on. Accept the the good things out of it, throw away the bad things, take the lessons learned and push forward. Right? I would like to see that at, implemented at some of the larger agencies and the at the writ large. And just I mean, it's so it's it's easier to to shift a smaller culture than it is a larger one, right? And so right. I'd like to see. I'd like to see that more and more of of that experimentation, more and more of that that uh, uh, the, the the ethos and culture uh, out that I see out of places like Army Software Factory and Kessel Run and Bespin and Section Thirty One and just like there's a huge list of them. Like like the the folks that get there and get excited, I I I I, I, I see physical changes in the people that do that. I'd like to see that all over. I think it's great. That's what I Yeah, there's certainly a level of sort of enthusiasm, excitement, fun, dare I say, uh, that that comes with a lot of those environments. Uh, Paired with incredible delivery. Yeah, it is. And I think that there's a lot to learn from that model, especially in the um, fail fast and move on. You know, I think what, you know, rightly or wrongly, there's this perception that the U.S. government is sometimes deeply invested in the sunk cost fallacy, which is that yeah. I have spent this much money, so I better just keep spending until it's done. There are money after stories bad. of systems and and aircraft, maybe even, that never came to fruition that we spent millions and billions on uh, because we were afraid to walk away um, yeah. and take the lessons that we learned and apply to something new. To something else. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I don't think that really serves I don't think that serves anybody in the end. Certainly, you know, not the the government folks working on it, the taxpayers, like like any of it. Um, the world at large, and it's certainly and it's certainly not the model that any successful commercial organization uses, right? Yeah. Um, 
they don't continue to take money into failing product lines, not if they're going to survive. Not right? if they're going to exist for long. So, yeah. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, I will go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks, Kevin, for, for joining us. Love it. Um, everyone, thanks for listening to Highlight Cast. Uh, to keep up with highlights, news, and activities, follow us on LinkedIn or visit our website at highlighttech.com. Uh, tune in for our next episode, which will be 2023 in review. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Ashley. Have a great day, y'all. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect Highlight Technologies and or any agency of the U.S. government.